Good morning. Welcome again to the live stream at South Suburban Christian Church. My name is Pastor Ike, and I want to just take this moment to thank you uh, for joining with us over these past eight or so weeks as we come to you online. Uh, I want to share with you also that we've had uh, 48 people over the last couple of weeks either make a decision for Jesus Christ or rededicate their lives to Christ. None of us could have expected the impact of this ministry like it has been. And we're grateful for your ongoing support, uh, both financially with your prayers and joining us here on Sunday morning. Can I ask you, continue to pray for not only this ministry, uh, but continue to pray for those who have encountered Jesus Christ uh, uh, during this season uh, as we have sought to be faithful to the call of the gospel. Um, we're actually looking to expand our communications team here at South Suburban Christian Church, uh, looking for an additional staff person as we continue to grow this ministry. We're putting together a team that's looking at ways that we might be able to come together uh, uh, in the building or in some fashion. But we're not going to stop this, this ministry. This ministry has proven to be a blessing for the church, for us, for me personally. Uh, we're going to be looking for uh, ways that God is leading us as we expand this ministry, this online campus, if you will, as we seek to reach uh, those who are in need of hearing the message that God is love, that God loves them, and that God has called them into a relationship with Himself. We're also starting a new series today. It's called The Stories of Jesus. If you took the life of Jesus in the Gospels, you could divide it into about seven periods. Uh, there's the period from his birth to his baptism, the first year, second, and third year of his ministries, the last three months of his life, the last week of his life, and then the section of Christ's, uh, the events around Christ from his resurrection to his ascension, uh, where he took his rightful place at the right hand of God the Father. Over the next 14 weeks, we're going to look at these events. We're going to look at two events from each period of Jesus' life. And, and I kind of have two goals for this series. One is to simply provide you a, a roughly chronological narrative of Jesus and his life, of the stories that are found in the gospel. But number two, what we want to do is we want to invite you to consider that the role of the Christian is not so much to invite Jesus into our story, but to respond to the invitation to enter into Jesus' story. Let me say that second goal one more time. We want you to recognize that it is not the Christian perspective that we invite Jesus into the story of our lives, but Jesus invites us into His story, into a relationship with Him. Now, I know that may sound like a subtle difference. Maybe it's too subtle for some of you. But I pray that you'll be confronted with the idea that being a follower of Jesus Christ doesn't mean that we invite Jesus into our lives so that our lives will be easier or better, but that we have been invited into the story of Jesus, which is a story of truth. Sometimes pain, many times struggle. But it is a story, a life of meaning and truth. Now we're going to begin this series looking at the, at the events immediately following the visitation of the Magi or the wise men. Now you might be saying, well, isn't that a Christmas story? Yes, you'd be right. 
but the, the, the text we're going to look at today is a text that isn't often read during the Christmas season. We're going to pick up immediately, if you have your Bibles, in Matthew chapter 2, immediately after the Magi have departed, having given the Christ child gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. You'll remember uh, that they had seen the star, been following the star. Uh, they went to King Herod, who was king over Judea, and said, the king of the Jews has been born. Do you know where he is? Herod uh, calls his advisors, his religious leaders. They tell him uh, that the, the, the prophecies are that Jesus, would, the Messiah, would be born in Bethlehem. And so the Magi go to Bethlehem. Now they've left, and we pick up. And, and the, the whole text is uh, Matthew chapter 2, 1 through 18, verses 1 through 18. But I'm going to pick up reading at verse 13. So. If you have your Bibles ready, will you read along with me as we read together God's Word? Now when they had departed, that is the Magi, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And Joseph rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I have called my son. Verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted, because they are no more. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We began planning this series over a month ago, before the events of the past two weeks really gripped our nation and our community here in Denver, in the Denver area. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm pretty much done with 2020. We began the year with the infection that would turn into a global pandemic, would transition our culture from one that was constantly complaining about uh, all of the work and, and no free time and, and constantly being around people and having to attend to, to the needs of people. And like just in a few days, maybe a week, suddenly we find ourselves with lots of downtime in isolation, being told that we can't even be around other people. And then, of course, over the last week, last two weeks, we have seen yet again how violence is an all-too-familiar human response to injustice. Now, I want to lay some ground rules with you today. Some things that you can probably observe, but I want to be able to say it just so we have it on the table. I'm a white preacher. I'm a white male preacher. I have, for most of my life, been a part of churches that are predominantly white. I grew up in a working-class neighborhood in a small town, in an 800-square-foot bungalow made of concrete block. It was a street where everyone was white. But it intersected a street 
uh, where most of the residents there were African-American. As you may know, my name is Ike Nicholson, and I grew up on Purnell Street. And right around the corner was a gentleman named Ike Purnell, who lived just a few houses away from us. We would always get each other's mail. And so, quite regularly, we would make the trek down to one another's houses, returning the mail that was mistakenly delivered to the wrong house. Mr. Purnell was a soft-spoken African-American man in his 80s. Behind our house was a large field. It was a field that sat fallow most summers. It was just weeds and grass. On the other side of the field were the backyards of our African-American neighbors. I can remember playing in those fields as a kid with all of the children from the neighborhood, both Martin Street and Purnell Street. Until one day in October 1979. I was 10 years old, and in our small town of about 2,000 people, violence erupted. I was really too young to understand what the violence was all about, but what I do remember was a group of white teenagers and white young adults on one side, the east side of Church Street, and a group of black teenagers and black young adults on the west side of Church Street. They were throwing rocks and bottles at one another and at passing cars. Now, first of all, I found it real interesting that the street that divided the African-American community from the predominantly white community was named Church Street. But nevertheless, I'll never forget that evening when my mother was taking me and my best friend, Kak Nok Nguyen. Kak Nok was an immigrant from Vietnam who had he and his family had settled in our little small town in Snow Hill, Maryland. My mother was taking Kaknock and I to the fall festival at the local school when our car was attacked by the group of white young adults and white kids. I didn't understand what all of that meant. I just was afraid. The days that followed, that field that was behind our house was empty. The kids over on Martin Street and the kids on Purnell Street were not allowed to play together anymore in that field. I don't ever remember playing in that field ever again in my entire childhood. My parents did a really good job at hiding the brutality of real life from me. And it would only be as an adult that I would reflect back on those events and, and realize how children of our community suffer because of the foolishness and the ignorance of adults. Now, I've been fortunate throughout my life to travel throughout the world, and I have close friends and colleagues throughout the world. One of my very dear friends is a Muslim who lives in the country of Jordan, Ali Abu Shakra. Ali sent me a note last night saying that he was praying for me and for my family, for our safety. Let me put that into context. A friend of mine who lives in the Middle East was sending me a note saying he was praying for my safety as he had heard all of the news reports about the violence here in the States. That is surreal. 
I have another friend, Salim Massey. Salim is a pastor with the Christian church movement in Pakistan. Pakistan is a country where Christians find themselves on the wrong side of the law all the time. Just a few months ago, a Christian day laborer on a farm was beaten to death because the farm owners, who were Muslims, saw him rinsing his hands off with the water from a tube well, which is a type of device used to irrigate the fields. Those that beat him to death accused him of polluting the water because he was a Christian. No one was ever arrested for that. And my friend, Pastor Salim, officiated that young man's funeral. Salim also sent me a note telling me that the Christians in Pakistan were praying for us, both as brothers and sisters in Christ and as a nation. Another friend of mine, Pastor Raphael, who is an American, born in Puerto Rico, and serves on staff at Mosaic Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. Pastor Raphael sent me a sermon that was written by one of the other pastors on their staff there. And in that message, there were some interesting questions. Why is it that only people of color on your church's staff are janitors? community outreach directors, or secretaries? Hmm. Why is it that people of color do not share the pulpit in your church, hold positions of responsible authority in your church, or that one of them, when one of them is empowered and leadership is given to them, there's no one else like them who has a seat at the table? Another friend and colleague of mine, Pastor Gregory Bryant, has written one of the best books, in my opinion, ever on the issue of race. Pastor Bryant is an African-American pastor who is also a teacher in the public school system. And his book is entitled, The American Church in Black and White. I highly recommend this book to you. In it, he cites some reasons that might help us answer the question from our friends at Mosaic Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. Pastor Bryant says that the differences in worship, that our different views on clergy and pastoral authority, and how different ethnic groups approach the Bible are significant landmines, he says, in helping us realize the unity of the church given to us by Jesus Christ. He goes on to say that moving toward racial justice means being willing to engage in spiritual warfare. He writes, Until Christ comes again, our struggle in the areas of racial, cultural domination, and the possibility of reconciliation are probably going to be ongoing struggles which must be monitored and for which there must be much prayer and engagement. He goes on to say, I once heard someone say, sometimes opportunity knocks once, but temptation bangs on the door every day. Evil is very persistent. (sighs) 
Near the end of his book, he goes on to make the point that we all read the Bible from a perspective of our own experiences. And here is the challenge. This series, hopefully, will begin to unpack that challenge. That is, that we are not called to force Jesus in the Bible into our experience or our story, but we need to be willing to enter into His story. And perhaps, in this season of turmoil, a willingness for us to enter into the story of those who live every day with not only the spiritual, but the physical warfare of everyday existence. Something that most of us, myself included, just don't understand. There was a recent article written on this passage of Scripture that I read to you today about the slaughter of the innocents. That's what we call this section of Scripture where Herod ordered the execution of every male child under the age of two in Bethlehem. In it, the author invited us into the horrific events following Herod's orders to execute these young children. Now, King Herod, both in Scripture and in historical documents, was a ruthless king, a constant compromiser with Rome, willing to make sacrifices to pagan gods if it advanced his career, and willing also to murder three of his sons because he was afraid that they were a threat to his throne and his power. Herod, if anyone could have done these horrific events, Herod could have done them. The Gospel of Matthew says that the angel warned Joseph to take Mary and Jesus and flee the country. And the irony about all of this? You see, God had led the Hebrew people out of Egypt into a promised land. And here in this moment, God was leading His own Son, God the Son, the Son of God, back to Egypt so that His life would be preserved. When Herod passed away, when Herod died, the Holy Family, Joseph, Mary, and Jesus, Jesus came back to Bethlehem. But they were unable to settle there because of the violence and the political unrest and were forced to move to the far north province, province of Galilee where they settled in Nazareth, again to fulfill prophecy, but nonetheless seeking to escape the political tension and harsh enforcement of Roman rule. It was a very real life for Jesus. Not something fabled or made pretty in paintings or appropriate for a child's bedtime story. It was raw. It was hurtful. And it wasn't all that different than the kind of violence our brothers and sisters and the human race endure today. For King Herod, Jesus was a political threat. The author of the article that I read goes on to describe how even though Jesus had escaped death by the state under the reign of King Herod, three decades later, Pontius Pilate, an official of the Roman Empire, would pronounce Jesus' death sentence 
and see that he was hung on a cross. Like Herod, Pilate does this to maintain power, to remove a threat, and to keep his position of authority, afraid that the people might rebel if he sought to fulfill true justice. Listen, brothers and sisters, this is my opinion, I admit, and you're free to disagree with it. But I believe that we live in a world where politicians of all shapes and all shades and all parties either seek to resist the faith altogether or they use faith, particularly the Christian faith, to secure their own power and their own popularity. We live in a world where cultures, leaders, and even public opinion is willing to sacrifice the lives of the innocent on the altar of power and greed. The author of this article goes on to write these words. We are forced to recall that this is a world with families on the run, where the weeping of mothers is often not enough to win mercy for their children. More than anything, the story of the innocents here in the Gospel of Matthew calls us to consider the moral cost of a perpetual battle for power in which the poor tend to have the highest casualty rate. Now up until this point, the author of this article could well be any well-meaning Christian seeking to understand the stark image given to us in God's Word. And as he draws his article to a close, he reminds us, Christians believe that none of this suffering is in vain. The cries of the oppressed do not go forever unanswered. We believe that the children slaughtered by Herod were ushered into the presence of God and will be with God for eternity. The Christian tradition also affirms that Jesus is a suffering servant, that image given to us by the prophet Isaiah, and that that suffering served a purpose, that when the state ordered his death, God was at work. And through the slaughter of the truly innocent one, Jesus Christ, God was emptying death of its power, vanquishing evil, and opening the path toward forgiveness and reconciliation. The author talks about his family in this article, his ancestors, who found hope in this very biblical story as they lived in the antebellum south. He says that they saw in the Christian narrative an account of a God who cared for the enslaved and wanted more for them than the whip and the chain. Christianity did not merely serve the disinheritance, but it gave an inheritance the weak things that shame the strong, he writes. Who was the author of this article? You probably don't know who he is. His name is Dr. Esau McCauley. He is a professor of New Testament studies at Wheaton College, an evangelical 
college and university. And he's a priest in the Anglican Church of North America. Now, here is the irony. Many of you may not know that the Anglican Church in North America is actually a conservative split-off of the Episcopal Church. Having received my doctoral degree from an Episcopal seminary, seminary, I can tell you that there is little love lost between the Episcopal Church and the Anglican Church of North America. But before we think of ourselves as free of hate because of our own political opinions or perspectives, the three branches of the Stone Campbell movement, of which the Christian churches have come from, well... We're not the image of family get-alongs either. As a matter of fact, in 1995, a more evangelical group within our part of the Christian church, now called Disciples Heritage Fellowship, split off from us. And many of us still look at them with great suspicion. Matter of fact, one pastor friend of mine made the mistake of inviting a speaker to his church from one of these other branches, and to this day continues to be harassed by pastors and regional leaders. Listen, it is a great temptation for all of us to be able to point out darkness in the hearts of others, but being blind to the darkness within our own hearts. It's easy for us to condemn the hate of others and completely miss the hate that we harbor within our own spirits, our own minds. A hate sometimes, unfortunately, that we may not even be aware of. Now, I'm not real big on titles or descriptors. I would prefer to simply be referred to as a Christian a follower of Jesus Christ. But for those of you that do know me, you know that I'm typically described as a conservative or an evangelical within our particular branch of the movement. Part of that means that I agree with Pastor Bryant, who wrote the book, The Church in Black and White, that this is a spiritual struggle as much as it is a political and cultural war. It also means that although I have an appreciation for the impact of the rule of law and the importance of education, I also believe that the great work of individual conversion and community relationships are essential in this spiritual war. You see, my opinions, my actions have been shaped by my relationships with my friend when I was 10 years old, Kaknak Nguyen, by Ali Abu Chakra, by Salim Massey, by Pastor Gregory Bryant, by Abid, a Muslim Indian who owns the gas station and dairy shop that I go to from India whose wife is expecting their first child in just a few weeks. By Reverend Stanley McDonald, the pastor at New Hope Missionary Baptist Church, and the dozens and dozens and dozens of people 
of different races, of different cultures, even of different religions. And for me, it's not so difficult to maintain my faith in Jesus Christ because that faith teaches me that every human being, no matter their color, their creed, their ethnicity, their political persuasions, are created in the image of God. For me, the relationships with those individuals have changed my life. And they've helped me learn and grow. At times, they taught me humility. Because I was willing to risk saying the wrong thing to seek to create a right relationship. And this big, dumb, white guy would sometimes say the wrong thing. And because of their love for me and my desire to be in an authentic relationship with them, they corrected me. I admitted my mistake. I, I said, I'm sorry. And I tried to learn. And we moved on. And I got to know their families and their children, and I invited them into my family. And they know my children. At some point, we might find ourselves in a moment where we're not sure what to do in the midst of all of this. Some of my colleagues have said, you're a white preacher. You need to stand up and say something. While others have said to me, you're a white preacher. You need to be quiet and sit down and listen. <laughs> it seems that no matter what I do, I'm going to do the wrong thing for some people. And that's okay. It'll be okay. Because God's hand is at work here. With some humility, may I suggest to you, I know we're all looking for something to do. Some of you are posting memes on social media. Others of you may be marching. Others may be preaching with ferocity. If that's what the Spirit's leading you to do, then do it. But may I suggest something else to add to all of those things? Take the time to get to know someone different than you. Ask the name of the guy or the gal that you meet on the street in a place of business that heralds from a different culture or ethnicity. Be willing to risk rejection to enter into the life of another human being and to understand their perspective. You see, Jesus called people from different backgrounds, perspectives, and even political persuasions to be His disciples. Doesn't mean we'll always get along. But it must begin with each of us in our own hearts. 
That's my invitation to you. Enter into Christ's story. Enter into the story of someone else. Amen.